It's time for Eastcast and reports from coastal stations. East Utsira, West Utsira, South West Utsira and North North East Utsira. Wind South West, rain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss and Swiss Roll. Westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Hello and welcome to Eastcast here on Resonance 104.4 FM. So at Eastcast we come together to delve into the arts, the culture, the people of East London. My name's Nia Charpentier and I'm here with Pearl Wise and Anna Xavier. Yes, hello. So for today's show we thought we would look back over the past few months and bring you a best best off and we'll also be hearing from satirical cartoonist Modern Toss from the men who created the iconic Woodstock Festival back in 1969 and we'll be also telling you about an improvised comedy, a bike kitchen, a mini nature reserve and an audio tour of the brain. And we've had some incredible live music sessions over the past year so it was really hard to pick just two, but we'll be hearing from flamenco folk band All the Queen's Ravens and from Lael Amrad. Um, and we particularly liked uh, Lael's song dedicated to Leonard Cohen's 80th birthday. So you'll be hearing that later on. And you can get in touch via Twitter and Facebook, Eastcast Show, or check out all our listings, interviews and uh, music online at eastcastshow.com. But first up, as autumn has well and truly set in, here's something to stir up those summery festival memories. Because it's been 45 years since what was probably the most iconic festival there ever was, one that really captured the spirit uh, of the 1960s. I'm talking, of course, about Woodstock, and I talked to Michael Lang, who organised the festival, and Baron Woolman, who was there to capture it with his camera. I'm Michael Lang. I contributed to Baron's book and one of the producers of the Woodstock 69 Festival. It was Michael's idea, this whole festival. Don't let him tell you otherwise. He is the idea behind the greatest festival ever. I'm simply a photographer. My name's Baron Woolman and I just took pictures of his festival. How did this collaboration between the two of you come about? I have a mutual friend who, who saw the pictures and who was a fan of Woodstock itself, the whole event. And he just thought it would be a good idea to make a book and that get Michael's voice and my pictures together to tell the story as much as possible of what happened that weekend. And why are you doing this now? Well, it's a uh, 45th anniversary. It's, you know, anniversary is always good times to remember events. And, you know, Woodstock seems to be something that remains a part of the fabric of, of our world even today and, and, and doesn't seem to be diminishing at all. So there's a lot of interest and Baron's wonderful photographs have never been in a book and, and we just thought, I guess they can just thought really, why not now? And what was it about Woodstock that has made it so such an iconic special festival? Well, there were many aspects. First of all, it was um, an organic festival. I mean, Michael had a really good idea of how to bring people and bands together, not for the sake of making money necessarily, not that he wanted to lose money, but that wasn't the purpose. It was really a gathering of people, like-minded people, at a time in society, especially in the U.S., where it was important for that voice to be heard and people to get together. So that became the nexus of the festival, and it kind of grew from there. It became bigger than anything he had even planned it to be. And do you think it was mainly about timing, you know, that essence, the spirit of the time? Yes, I think, I think to, you know, to a large extent it was about the timing. You know, we had been a generation of kids who felt we could really make a difference in the world and let our voices be heard, and we, we uh, got out of the house and got into the streets and, and fought for things that we believed in, for human rights and civil rights and, and into the Vietnam War and really many, many, many issues, the ecology and, and so on. And, you know, we had this sort of dream that this could be a more peaceful and compassionate world and, and we were going to try and make it so. And through, toward the end of that decade, um, 
particularly you know in the six, in '68, that sort of dream started to becoming become part of it. You know, things started to get a bit violent in, in the pol- politics of, of the youth culture, and um, there were the assassinations of of Kennedy and Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, and, and Nixon was in the White House, and things were not looking very good. And, and I felt that we were maybe losing our grip on, you know, that sort of dream. And so we felt, let's bring everybody together. Let's sort of gather the tribes together and, and see if we can actually live, you know, those ideals ourselves. And that would be, you know, a statement that, that might have some, some force to it. And, and we did, and it did, on steroids. <laughs> Are there any particular moments from Woodstock that have stuck in your memory? Uh, for me, I mean... One moment that continues to stick in my memory is when Ricky Havens took the stage and the sound system worked and the festival started. And it was sort of a major relief on our part. You know, we had probably then three, 350,000 kids in the field. And um, it just felt like such a good vibe. And, you know, things came together in such a communal way. And, and this wonderful community had formed. And, and uh, that was a very magical moment for me. Mm-hmm. The amazing thing is that that community stuck together for three days in circumstances where you wouldn't expect it to stick together, you know, and kind of confirm what he had been talking about, that that generation, you know, really did believe in the dream and was willing to basically live the dream, you know, in spite of bad weather and mud and facilities, sanitary facilities that were limited and food that was limited. Nobody got angry. There was no violence. There was nothing that you see in festivals today, you know. What about festivals today? Are there any that compare? Most modern festivals are somewhat based in some way on on the Woodstock model. Um, I think maybe Bonnaroo is the closest. But, you know, Woodstock was more than just a party. It was more than just, you know, sort of a, a concert, you know, kind of party event. It was really this sort of sociological phenomenon that, that uh, overpowered the basic festival model and became something very spiritual. And so you're trying to sort of capture the essence of what happened there? I mean, I tried to with the camera when in 1969. I was trying to capture the essence of what was going on beyond the music. The music was phenomenal, there's no question about it. But I had photographed all the bands prior to Woodstock, and I was more interested in this event that I had never encountered anything like it in my life. And I said, and I said this has to be documented in its own way, beyond the music. It's about the people that, that were there. You know, there was very little security, and you know, that was their idea. They didn't want any violent security that, or security that would create violence. And more people came than had tickets who wanted to hear the music. And it was very, as you can see, the cyclone fence was pretty basic. It was not there to keep people out, but kind of more of a demarcation line. And so the people decided they wanted to come in anyhow, at which point the producers decided more or less at which point to make it a free concert, which is a significant, significant moment. Yeah, I mean, it was actually not even a decision. It was just sort of acknowledging a fait accompli. It was... (laughs) You know, we didn't have any ticket booths in place. Um, So it was impossible to either sell or collect tickets. And so, you know, we just did the obvious, which was, you know, it's free and and everybody take responsibility for it. And everybody did. And and it really worked. And that would never happen now. I mean, tickets for the big festivals now in excess of 200 pounds, aren't they? Yeah. This was $18 for the three days, including camping and free kitchens and free (laughs) free stages and... Thank you very much, both of you. You're welcome. I am Jenny So you can imagine $18 for just a three-day festival sounds very impossible to believe these days. Than yeah, these goes. days it's just that just would never happen. I don't think. <laughs> Quite impossible, yeah. I've, um, just, uh, I've just tweeted a photo of that fence so you can, you can have a look at the... Uh, security in inverted commas (laughs) can imagine it was quite hardcore right (laughs) well um it's quite unbelievable next up there's an attempt uh, to be a bit more practical about my cycling and i went out to check the london bike kitchen to learn how to fix my bike and to give it a bit of love i am jenny gwazdowski and i'm the director of the london bike kitchen it started in 2011 when i decided my New Year's resolution that year was going to be to build up a bicycle. I had a frame and then I was like, oh wait, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to do it. 
and I don't know how. So I started doing research on looking for bike building classes and I couldn't find any. And then my flatmate at the time was Californian and she asked if we had a bike kitchen here. And I said, what's a bike kitchen? And so the more research I did into them, the more I was like, I could set that up for some reason. And I did. It took about a year. But in March 2012, we opened up. What was your motivation to create something like this then? I used to be a teacher. And I also really like bikes. And so I was just really juiced by the idea that I could maybe teach people how to fix their bike even though I didn't know how to at the time, but I knew I could find people that would help. And plus it was different, so I'm gonna try. So now here we have three people, four people plus you? Yeah. Fixing bikes? Yeah. Which is quite a small space, but it can fit loads of bikes in here. How many people do you actually have throughout the day coming in? It varies. Uh, on the weekends we get maybe eight, ten people a day. It just depends on what people are working on. Like, two of these guys are actually building bikes from scratch. All right. Um, and, and how long will that take? That takes the whole day. That takes eight hours. Sometimes more, but hopefully not. And uh, what are the main questions that people have when they come around? Like, the most popular problem? Should we say, yeah. <laughs> Punctures. I think it's a really common problem. Most people are going to get one in their bike lifetime. And a lot of people, they, they want to fix it and they get really surprised when they find out that we won't do it for them, but we'll teach people how to do it. So that's what we do. It's strictly DIY. We actually send people to other bike shops when they don't want to do it themselves. Has that happened many times? Yeah, it happened today. Okay. And uh, I suppose that men would come in more than women. They do, yeah. But I've noticed it's changing. I think it's probably due to a lot of different factors that more women are riding bikes. We do a women and gender variant night where we try to teach the basics so that women's skill level and confidence levels will come up and then they can come in during a drop-in session. If you wanted to learn a lot of things in one go, we recommend taking our introduction to maintenance class in a six-hour session. Uh, we show people how to do basic maintenance on their bike um, and some repairs. There is a difference between maintenance and repair in that good maintenance will prevent things from breaking so you don't have to repair them. And that's a 60-pound class, and we have a couple of those scheduled every month. We also do build-your-own-bike class, which is an eight-hour session, full day of taking your bike apart and putting it back together where we show you what tools you need To, to service and clean and put stuff back together. I'm Chris. I bought all the parts myself and then I just brought it in here because I wanted to have a go at building it myself and then learning something at the same time. Uh, and also when I've taken bikes to bike shops before to be built up, just take along all the parts, sometimes they don't do a proper job and I think a lot of the bike shops in London are so busy, they have so many customers to serve that sometimes they just rush things through And if I build it myself here, at least I know that I'm doing a proper job. And then you so, know how to fix the problem. Then yeah, then. exactly. And then I can learn the mechanical stuff as well, which normally you'd have to pay for extra to go on a mechanics course. So, I see. Double benefit. But, uh, but yeah, it's been, it's been really good today. I'm nearly finished now. Well, how long have you been here then? Since 11. All right. Uh, but we got falafel for lunch, which was <laughs> one of the highlights. And someone came in earlier on with a weird hub on his back wheel, which I'd never seen before. I didn't know that kind of hub existed. You kick back on the pedals to change gear, which is insane. So, um, yeah, it was cool. <laughs> What can you say after two years being in the business? <laughs> um, it's really hard work, but it's massively rewarding. Um, I've learned so much. I'm always learning new things every day. I make mistakes all the time, but it's fine because I'm learning. But on the cards right now, we're looking to change into a workers' cooperative so that I'm not the one that bears all the responsibility. So that was Jenny Jawalski, and uh, you're listening to Resonance 104.4 FM. And any any comments on? Oh well, on this I went. One? I actually went into the bike kitchen the other day, and what I found was that um, they really it, there was a mixture of kind of 
total bike geeks who just like know their bikes inside out and they're there to yeah. kind of you know build things from scratch and then complete novices but they don't patronize the novices at all they really kind of just give you the tips that you need but without kind of intervening too much so you actually learn and you can kind of fix your bike so i was in there trying to sort out a puncture and i was just left to my own devices but i could ask questions if i needed to well, they cannot give you all the insights, otherwise you wouldn't go on the course, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> That's the goal. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I just found that it was, it was, um, yeah, it was quite a level and uh, a, a nice environment. And you just don't, you, you know, you can go in there. and Especially this, the place is quite small, so you need to be friendly with everyone. You can't, <laughs> you can't be in a bad mood, I suppose. Well, um, still to come on the show, we have a song dedicated to Leonard Cohen. So some rude cartoonists and Pearl finds some peace and quiet in an East London natural reserve. But before that, Nia has a question for you. I do. Uh, what does the brain sound like? It's probably not a question you've asked yourself all that much, but we are going to tell you the answer anyway. So most people can imagine what the brain looks like. Some people can imagine what the brain tastes like maybe even smells like, but few people have ever thought about what it might sound like. There's a range of different recordings that we have that illustrate what the brain sounds like if you use different tools. So for example, if you take a glass needle and you stick it into a single neuron, which is a single cell in the brain, you can actually listen to the electrical signals as they transmit along that wire. Uh, you can also do something which is called an EEG, where you stick a bunch of sensors on the top of someone's head and you can listen to the electricity in that way, almost a bit um, a satellite might pick up on signals from the Earth. There's another really bunch of funky recordings where a neuroscientist has taken different readings of the brain and then turned those into musical notes and then he's created what he calls brain music. So you can listen to different uh, musical recordings of the brain. And what's quite interesting is that it doesn't just come up as a bunch of random noise. The signals from somebody who has schizophrenia are remarkably different from those from people who don't. And there is some discussion that you might even be able to use these recordings as ways to medically diagnose something that might be going on inside your head. That was Gorilla Science there, and you can see what else they're up to um, by going to their website, gorillascience.org. Um, so, for example, at the moment, they're on a US-wide tour of um, all things intergalactic space travel. Hot topic at the moment. Space is literally everywhere. Um, now, back on Earth, I'd like to introduce you to the very talented Lael Arad, who, as you're here, is a very big Leonard Cohen fan. Now, we're joined in the studio by Lael Arad. Lael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so you are here to tell us about your the first track on your debut album. You're it's about- the second album. Oh, it's the second album. Yeah. yeah. So what was the first... When did you release your first album? The first album came out about three years ago. And what's this new album called? And- the new album is so new that it doesn't have a name yet. Or if it does, I can't quite say, but it will be out in the new year. But yeah, the first preview track has just been released. And it's uh, a song that I wrote for Leonard Cohen. And uh, so are you a bit of a Leonard Cohen fan? You might say. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I've listened to some of your um, music online and it's all quite lyrical and, and obviously quite poetic is that um are you inspired by that kind of writing is it, it's a sort of wordsmithery rather than for, just... sh- for sure yeah uh, lyrics is definitely what interests me maybe the most I, you know the music is an equally important part of course but i'm definitely drawn to songwriting and songwriters and leonard cohen has always been up there do you write anything else other than uh, songs, songs about leonard cohen yeah <laughs> 
No, other than um, like, are you? Yeah, the truth is that I'm working on my first novel as well. Um, as you know, as you know, novels are a little bit longer than songs, so it may take some time. But um, it's you know, I'm quite a, a way into the process, so that's been really interesting actually, writing lines that don't have to rhyme and repeat. And a little bird told me that one of the characters is called Pearl. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and uh, and she's very wise, too. Uh, well, there you go. <laughs> I feel, I feel honoured, even though I have nothing to do with it. It's great to have something, you know, so, so familiar. Um, so shall we get you to um, play us? A song? Please, I'll play you the song. The song. The song. The, uh, so you're going to play the 1934... Yeah, 1934 a song for Leonard Cohen. Excellent. Um, Let's uh, take it away. I would have been your lover Probably not more My survival skills Would have danced me to the door but for a time I'd be your muse Let me amuse you with the image Up the hill in Hedra Or down in Greenwich Village And the sun would turn me olive And I'd pose for the sleep Cold would keep us warm under blankets thick as thieves. Solo es musica, a poor man's prose. Solo es musica, a rich man's woes. I'd be high on hormones, you'd be low on cash. this song in New York we put down some very frilly backing vocals and every time I play it live I kind of wish I could sing in three voices at once so you could hear them but I thought at least if I sing them to you separately maybe you could imagine them in the background when the last chorus comes so I'm going to give it a go
That was the beautiful voice of Lyle Arad. So good to look back at some of our live sessions from the past few months. And happy belated birthday, Leonard Cohen. And there's actually another birthday anniversary celebration going on. So satirical cartoonists Modern Toss are celebrating 10 years with a new book and exhibition called A Decade in the house. I'm not allowed to say the actual name on on Resonance. I talked to them about where they get their ideas, how they've lasted this long and whether anything they've done has ever been too rude for publication. My name is John. Mick. And I am part of Modern Toss. So am I. So ten years you're celebrating. What do you think has enabled you to last this long? I think we're probably just part of our own movement really. Uh, And that's probably part of the key to it. No one's really quite sure what we're doing or what we're up to, nor are we half the time either. Do you? No, I don't. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what, what any of us are doing, really. Yeah. yeah. Ten years is a long time when you don't know what you're doing. And how did it all start? Well, me and John uh, worked together at uh, Loaded in the 90s. And we used to just sort of uh, get a lot of visual ideas together with little jokes in. And uh, we just moved it on to the next level, which was making a comic. That's kind of how it started. We both had mad ideas that we wanted to do. I read somewhere that what you do is sort of hang around in public spaces listening to what people say. Um, <laughs> I read it in The Independent. Yeah. Uh, that is how we do it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Don't we just hang around places? Train, train journeys. We read The Independent. Buses, uh, libraries, bus stops. Um, bus stops are good. Trains are good, aren't they? Because everyone talks so loud now on the bus and yeah. the train. Because everyone's got, you know, everyone's shouting all the time. It's great. You don't have to make any effort at all to listen yeah, in. Yeah, phone, phones are really good because people speaking on phones, they're just, uh, it's no, uh, they just don't hold back, do they? So you get the full, full impact of what they are. You know? I was telling John about, uh, I was uh, sat behind a woman who was having a go at uh, her kid's teacher on the phone. It was hilarious. She completely lost it. So a lot of your work is commentary on some quite unhappy people. So, you know, there's sort of dysfunctional relationships, dead-end jobs. Have you had yourselves experience of being in those situations? Or is it all observation? Very small experience of work in an office and uh, it didn't last long really but we did just long enough to pick up the atmosphere of what you have to put up with in an office really so I sold double glazing for a couple of afternoons the bloke would come round with a bag of pound coins and if you've got a lead he'd give you a pound coin I did pretty well better than a carrot wasn't really a proper job but it was good while it lasted but it was good fodder for your career to come yeah I also worked as an ice cream man I can imagine that's quite quite a nice job yeah it was yeah get to meet a lot of people unless it was a bank holiday it's just really busy you know but you do yeah you get to meet the public and pick up a few sort of little catchphrases and things yeah then you have to go through do you want want white pink or just white do you want medium small large do you want a flake in it once you've done that 400 times on a bank holiday so you're launching a book? Yeah, it just seems seemed right time to get all the work out, put it on the floor, try and put it in some sort of order. I think we, we didn't really realise how much stuff we had yeah. until we sort of started getting it all out, going through all the files. We had to kind of put everything on the walls so that we could see what we'd done because we'd done so much stuff. Even we couldn't remember most of it. So the book just got bigger and bigger. And it goes beyond what's on the pages because a lot of your stuff is quite multimedia, quite interactive, isn't it? And that's what this exhibition is about, isn't it? You can actually exist in a cartoon as yourself, as a person, with a speech bubble coming out of your head on a coloured background. And then there's a periodic table of swearing which you can sort of walk up to and interact with press buttons and it'll swear back at you and what else is there we've got yeah. the, we've got the um, tool, we've got the swearing shouting, pictures shouting pictures 
how does the partnership work? Does one of you draw, one of you write, or is it a complete collaboration? Well, we both draw and we both write. We're, we're both into cartoons and cartooning. I think that's what, what sort of brought us together, probably. We both sort of pitch in with all the ideas and uh, whatever works is what works. We throw quite a lot of stuff away, but we are getting more efficient as we go on. Posh people, royal babies... Royal weddings. Royal weddings. They're the sort of events that we get asked to, you know, much the same way as a poet laureate might be yeah. asked to write a poem. We get asked to illustrate it in cartoon. Yeah. They don't want to invite us to the event, so they get us to just do cartoon with it. So you've done such a broad range of characters. We have. Any particular favourites? I think we keep going back to the work series, but there's also there's some sort of more, much more experimental characters that we really like working with. There's one called Liberty Taker and legal long shots and stuff like that. We can uh, get a, bit, a lot more extreme. The work ones uh, work because they're so simple. It's just sort of a, you know, a sort of a boss figure and a stroppy employee yeah. and that is kind of boils down more or less everything all of our jokes we've broken it down in, in the book we've, we've sort of anatomised the cartoon yeah. and labelled it all so that you can actually reproduce your own modern toss cartoon yeah. if you want to well that looks like there's nothing going on in it we've actually got about 50 we've got 50 points out of it of, uh, of interest it's precision minimalism yeah it's the opposite of what most cartoons do, which is throw everything in. Are there any which haven't made it because they're a little bit too risque? No such thing. <laughs> well, good luck with your book and the exhibition. Thanks very much for talking to us today. John Link and Mick Bunnage from Modern Cheers. Toss. And I've just tweeted a photo of myself in that very cartoon, so you can have a look at East Cast Show. You can take a look at that. There's been quite a lot of those um, cartoons with different people in them I've seen circulating across social media, so people have definitely picked up on that. And they, they love it. Enjoying you know, it. It's just so simple, though. You know, it's not a, it's not about the kind of the artwork. It's just they've taken a, a sort of an idea that a lot of people can relate to and... Uh, and it, taking the mick out of it, yeah. It kind of relates to um, the advertising that's very sort of trendy at the moment with people like people's names on Coke bottles and mm. perfume and that kind of thing. So it, it's taking that idea and, and but actually satirising it a little bit. And mm. it's, it's fun. And I think people love when something's interactive. They just like love touching and, and you know feeling whatever. They, they are not meant to touch, that kind of thing. And being in one and kind of showing it off. Yeah, they've it's definitely, definitely the, got a lot of multimedia stuff going on. And um, the Modern Toss exhibition uh, you just heard about is at Forge and Co in Shoreditch for another week and if you make it down you can have a go on their um, periodic table of swearing where each element has a different sound effect and the ones that we were allowed to play on radio include these two acting like a cock snake on plant food and who's the prat in the corner so you get the idea. <laughs> I, I don't understand how it works. So you, you tap a, a key and then yeah, and one of these phrases comes out. And lots of swear words get shouted out at you. Can you do like multiple ones and you just say like hit loads yep. of keys? You can do whatever you want and it sort of releases the inner, you know, childish Dennis the Menace. Yeah, <laughs> immature little child in you. So it's, it's very fun. Maybe there's a future app in that, you know, where your phone just... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's, there's already apps for that. I have a mate there already uses that for every circumstances and you know when when we meet she's like hold on everybody she gets her phone and just she plays the according the, the song the, the sound that would be you know awful awful in in that circumstance because she just loves doing that <laughs> <laughs> so i think that's the way to go they did you know plan it right so you are listening to Resonance 104.4 FM uh, and this show is called Eastcast and we're playing a bit of a best of show looking back at the last few months. And if you like what you're hearing, you can find all our interviews, our listings, music, all at eastcastshow.com. Thanks, Nia. Um, now something a little bit cleaner. Um, I went to an open day in the summer at the Bethnal Green Nature Reserve, which is also called the Phytology Meadow. Um, and it's a place where artists and botanists meet and celebrate the benefit of weeds with an S. 
so you don't have to fuss running around going, what's the dock leaf look like? <laughs> you know, I've had people pulling out burdocks, I've had people pulling out hogweed, just because it looks different and it's near a nettle, okay? So just yank out the same plant that stings you and go to town on it. And you won't, you won't cause the nettle any My name is Michael Smythe, and I am Don't one of the producers the on the Phytology Project. It's a collaborative project between artists and botanists and herbalists and town planners. But most importantly, it's um, activating a piece of land in the heart of Bethnal Green that's been closed for a very long period of time and making a public space that people can come and harvest fresh medicinal herbs that are basically common weeds. So we're actually sitting in the phytology garden. It hasn't always been called that. Yeah, so the the site we're on was originally called St. Jude's Park, I think, and then, because St. Jude is the pension saint of lost causes or no hope, the local community thought it was more positive if it was called the Bethnal Green Nature Reserve and, and working with the idea of semantics and the idea of nature and reserve locally making people perceive the place differently. So the place is still called Bethnal Green Nature Reserve, but we're presenting um, the phytology project within the Bethnal Green Nature Reserve. So phytology is a, a project that's sort of existing in this footprint. So what's the phytology project? Phytology is a sort of a long-term project looking at the role of medicinal weeds. What we've done is sort of decided upon a kind of a random number of 32 plants that have ongoing proven medicinal value and grown a meadow culture out of those. Um, things like dandelion or, or nettle or, I don't know, root plantain or, you know, things you see but you don't really quite know its value and what it's used for. So we've grown a meadow culture of these plants. It's open to the public to come and harvest and, and also learn about what each plant does. In addition to that, we've sort of developed a lot of writing and illustrations of each plant. So if you come to us and, and have the time, you can actually research what plants do what and we'll show you how to harvest and use. Kind of a tradition that's been lost to kind of know what plants are for. There does seem to be regenerated interest. Why, why do you think that is? Um, I think for me anyway, it's as we become more urbanised and as cities like London become, you know, they're very intense kind of hard surfaced environments. I think people are more and more interested in alternative ways of living in them. So green spaces are becoming more important. Allotments are becoming more important. Ways to generate and grow your own food, and in our case, medicine, is also really important. The idea for us is food as medicine as well. So a lot of these plants have great nutritional value. So I think this project is kind of part of that wider conversation, I guess, people are having at the moment in urban environments all around the world, really. And how did you get involved? About... 10, 15 years ago I went on a, a, a walk with a herbalist in a, in a city, a city I used to live in and um, she narrated what all the plants that were invisible to me actually do and, and ever since it's really changed my perception of cities um, also I don't come from a horticultural background so I think combination of like developing the idea, finding the appropriate collaborators and the piece of land, it, it does take time but equally that time taken has been a useful process to kind of understand what we're doing and working out if it works, if it doesn't work, how do we make it work, what it communicates, how it communicates. And, and also we've been here for a year before we opened just to kind of watch what happened on the site and nurture the meadow culture we're growing. I suppose you needed to wait for things to grow. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it does its own thing. So we have to jump in occasionally and intervene and other times step back and go, oh, okay, you're doing that, okay, good which is interesting um, and now after a year of setting the project up here we're open to the public and now there's a whole other kind of conversation as to you know how much harvesting is too much harvesting what plants will need to be taken out because they're too dominant so this is obviously the famous meadow that phytology have, have been developing and this is really really nice there's so many lovely things coming on in here from the the chamomiles to the comfries there's poppies to, the, to explode in any day now, you'll be a blaze of colour in here. The Bethnal Green Nature Reserve has a massive fence around it, and that makes the site invisible. So what you're getting is a lot of people who are just really quite blown away that this place exists, like this secret woodland and meadowland in the middle of like a, an area that it's completely unlikely to exist in. 
there are a lot of them are locals who are kind of coming in wanting to explore and look around through that kind of engagement we're talking to people about the project then there are other people that are coming specifically for this and it's really conversations about you know their health and nutrition and people wanting to just garden but not in a way that is like the allotment culture or decorative you know they, a lot of people get the kind of wildness of this we're not claiming to be herbalists at all so you know we we provide a lot of information at as well as the resources of the plants. But it's really just been a lot about what people can do, what are the limits, and also people getting the confidence to kind of use these plants. The meadow culture is quite remarkable when you come in and see it. Like, it's very beautiful because the chamomile and the poppies are flowering right now, but um, it could just be any abandoned sort of piece of land, which is very intentional, lacking signage. The shed and the library have all the information and the gardeners are on hand to do oral communication as opposed to sort of text-heavy. We've also got a, a residency with the Nest Collective um, doing the Campfire Club each month about song and storytelling and a collaboration with the Ministry of Stories who do great work with creative writing and poetry and fiction and so they're doing a, a residency over summer. So just looking at multiple ways to kind of communicate and work with kind of storytelling, I guess. Mm. Be it visual, um, be it oral, be it written. So just to get the kind of practical information in, people who want to visit, how does it work? What do they need to do? So we're open only two days a week on a Friday and a Saturday from 10 till 5. We're right between Old Bethnal Green Road and Bethnal Green Road. The site technically doesn't exist, so we're, we're telling people a postcode of a, an apartment block on um, Middleton Street. That will take you to the reserve, and really, people are just welcome to come in and look around and you know, find the gardeners and ask questions and um, use the library and also just spend time here. It's a very easy space to spend time. You know, we're always on site and open to dialogue, so, you know, people are welcome to really come up and, and ask questions and, and help us out too we always need to harvest something so if you just want to step outside of Bethnal Green Road madness and come into this incredible nature reserve and harvest chamomile for the afternoon you're most welcome to whatever question I've ever had the most random questions Ken's always like yeah I know the answer to that <laughs> so he's an incredible resource an incredible thank you Support. Well, so thank you again. You're very well, my pleasure. Cheers. Thank you. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Um, so we're just going to have a five-minute break. So it was really lovely to discover this secret walled garden in the middle of Bethnal Green, which isn't on a map, which make, makes it even more exciting. Yeah, and I love the fact you you hear the birds all across. The I, I did, and I didn't add those; those are real birds. <laughs> um, and you do, yeah. I mean, they're so you know, it really is a proper garden, and people. There's something. Um, amazing about the effect of a, that kind of garden. Everyone who goes there, you walk in and people are so friendly. I went there and was, was given bags of chamomile to go make tea at home. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, it's just an, an amazing space. They haven't got any events on at the moment, but it is still open at the weekend. So I, I highly recommend a visit. If you want a piece of quiet you just go there, especially you in Manic Manic East London these days it's definitely the place to, to get a bit of peace of mind um, Don't forget that we are East Coast on Resonance 104.4 FM and now uh, I can't really think of anything else more terrifying than getting up on stage and trying to make people laugh with material that's completely improvised but that's exactly what City Impro do and it is a game of what is it? And for this game, we need a uh, non-geographical location for you guys. A cave. A cave. A cave. <laughs> a cave. I like a cave. In a, I like a bakery in a cave. You couldn't make it up. <laughs> so I'm David Price, and I am one of the co-founders of City Impro. And can you tell me a little bit about what City Impro is? Yep, City Impro is a bunch of people who've come together, who've enjoyed doing improvisation classes and now really want to get out there and perform. So we perform for free, uh, lots of different venues, and all we ask for is people come along and laugh at our shows. 
And it's comedy, but it's quite a specific type of comedy, isn't it? it it's improvised, yes. Yeah. So it's, it's not comedy stand-up. People aren't coming along with um, scripts or jokes they're trying to put up on stage. Everything we're doing is based on audience suggestions. So the audience will come up and tell us you know, think, things they want to see on stage, and then we have to act it out. So we're kind of their puppets in a way. What is better about this kind of comedy, would you say? Having done kind of comedy um, acting before, uh, where you have to learn scripts, uh, improvisation is very different. You literally have no idea what's going to come up on the night. It could be the most outrageous suggestions. It could be some of the most plain, forward, plain straightforward suggestions. But when it goes up on stage and you're acting without in public, it can be hilarious in terms of what comes out. And it's completely off the cuff. Nobody knows what's coming next. Have you done it yourself? Uh, I have improvised uh, on and off for a good number of years and I did a couple of courses in the past couple of years and we've been improvising now since the end of last year so we've had probably coming up to about 30 shows I think in total. God, isn't it terrifying not knowing what you're doing before you get up there? Uh, it's quite scary, yeah, because you are literally at your hands of the audience. Um, so it involves a lot of quick thinking, and hopefully the audience will come up with some fantastic suggestions, which means we can, we can use them and, and be funny for them. And you've got quite a few nights around the East London area. What, what are some of those coming up? Yeah, so we do Sundays at the Water Poet in Shoreditch on a fortnightly basis, and we do Wednesdays at the Ophelia Theatre in Dalston. Um, so it's Wednesday evenings on a fortnightly basis as well. So we're kind of bringing it to an area where there hasn't really been improvisation before, so it's quite exciting, and we're getting some fantastic audiences coming along to us. We had some great acts tonight. We did, and each one of our shows is quite unique because we always have different acts who come along, so anybody who comes along to our shows will see a unique act from City Impro, but we'll also see completely different special guests each and every time they come, so every show is completely different. It's fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you very much. No problem. Thank you very much. So various points of the game, Tom and Ed will extend their arms thusly. And it will be the job of you to suggest an object or thing. For example, Tom might go, Oh, I wish I had mine. Go on. Find more. Lawnmower. And that will then become incorporated into the scene. So without further ado, this is the game of what it is for Ed and Tom. Give them a wrap. They are in a bakery in a cave. Give them a wrap. <laughs> I have to say, I I was a big fan of Whose Line Is It Anyway um, on Channel 4 when it was on. Um, And it was something that we always tried out in the school playground. Not quite as talented as these guys, but it's always (laughs) fun to, to have a go. So um, finally, we're going to leave you with some more music. All the Queen's Ravens are a band that mixes flamenco, pop and blues. And they don't have one, but they have two front women. Um... They came and talked to us about their multilingual backgrounds and their love of tea and red wine as the fuel for their music. And they performed two tracks from their debut album, Hearts of Judas, for us earlier in the year. But um, just before we set out into the October night, there's just enough time to say we've been discussed here on Resonance 104.4. And uh, you can find more about us, our, uh, about our East London discoveries at eastcastshow.com. Thanks for listening. All the Queen's Ravens are a band that mixes pop, folk, flamenco and blues in a very particular way. The, bo- the band includes two lead vocalists, Charlotte Edgett and Laura Hillman. Um, so they are in the studio um, to explain how they manage the amazingly talented voice on stage to- with two people, and uh, which is actually quite unusual in the music scene. Welcome Camilla and Laura. Thank Hi. you. Hi. <laughs> so, yes, how do you manage two amazing voices on stage, not competing because I already saw you live and it's just yeah. it's so amazing and beautiful that listening to two great voices together. No, there would never be any competing with, with Charlie and I. We've been best friends for many years, ever since we were young girls. And um, we've always kind of messed about singing together. And so when we kind of had the opportunity to actually start playing music together, which was always kind of like this distant dream, um, it just worked instantly. You know, and I think that's because there's a lot of, you know, the energy in our relationship as friends and and two people that get along really well and get each other and our differences and our equalities, we get them, you know, so that, yeah, it just works. It's just really easy. (laughs) Um, Also, tell me about your um, first album, which is called Hearts for Judas. Mm -hmm. This was a lot of work, Hearts for (laughs) Judas. It took about two and a half years was it about that kind of time yeah Yeah. to really come together and for us to make the decision that it was the time was right to just get in the studio and get it done and those particular tracks um that we wanted to have down because we've got such a huge repertoire um 
Yeah, it's it always very it. hard to choose tracks for the first album, isn't it? Because you always <laughs> need, you always think, oh, this is the, per- the baby, the exactly. first one. <laughs> it's really exciting because it's a real a real mixture of um, Spanish influences and English influences, and um, I think the strength of the album is, uh, you know, the combining the English vocals and the Spanish vocals is really unusual. So yeah. it's really exciting to pull it together. Yeah. Is there a Spanish background or is it just the love? You, I grew up in you, Spain, okay. so, yeah, spent all my, you know, childhood running around beaches and mountains of the south of Spain and watching <laughs> old Mexican <laughs> musicals. And, yeah, no, it was really beautiful. I was really lucky to grow up in such a beautiful place. But um, So I'm fluent bilingual Spanish and that had to, that had to come out somewhere. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Um, are you signed to a, a label? Is this an no, inter- not at the moment. Yeah, produced? we're completely independent at the moment, managing ourselves and doing everything by ourselves. Camilla's a, a whiz kid with <laughs> <Love it. laughs> with it's all great. these multimedia. I get a little bit like, oh. <laughs> but yeah, Camilla's really good with all that stuff, and she, we're really lucky to have her on board. And everybody does their bit, and um, we kind of all contribute and share and and kind of carry the load. But it would be nice to have some outside help at some point soon, hopefully. Because you're six people in band, right? Yeah. So, um, funny question. All the Queen's Ravens as an ice cream flavour, how would you define yourself (laughs) as? I don't eat ice cream. <laughs> oh no! I'm gonna let Camilla off on that one. Um, there'd probably be some red wine. I, I know red wine and tea. That's right. That sounds terrible. <laughs> it sounds terrible. But it's mostly what we drink when we rehearse. Yeah. It's one swig of tea and one swig of red wine. Oh. So it sounds like Walker's crisps, but um, <laughs> well, that works because that's the music <laughs> is amazing. So that's what it's a good combination. Who's anyway. the red wine? Who's the tea? We both, we both, it. everything. Everyone. <laughs> We're going to have to go back and make it. We're going to have to try it out. Yeah, I think we should. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we should definitely um, know what you guys are going to play for us. We're going to do um, a song called High for Free. And then? And then we're going to do Shipper Falls. All right. Thanks very much, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank, you. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming in. time ago there was a tongue in which we spoke and I was humbled by your quiet it did me good gave me life and all of those days looking at you
On the ceiling, as the day starts evicting the stars. For a while, I thought the room was still spinning. The world turned on its axis too hard. For my far away baby, don't listen to the sound of the cats in the dark. Ain't ain't we fools to think it will float and not sink it if we drink until the end of the jar? Oh. I find it hard to explain how I ended up in this place again. Still, I can tell by the way you're looking at me lately. Maybe you and I are in the same game. Oh, what kind of hand? What kind of hand are you playing? You can't be a Oh, God damn you, pretty baby, I don't care if I don't see you again. 